Today on Pence Exchange, the fiscal theory of the price level. Welcome to Pence Exchange, the forum where we discuss everything related to the historical experience of markets and their philosophical foundations. Today, we will be joined by John Cochrane, who is the Rosemary and Jack Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. He's also a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research and an adjunct scholar of the Cato Institute. Previously, he was a professor of finance at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business and at the Department of Economics. Dr. Cochrane has published several finance, monetary economics, macroeconomics, and time series econometrics articles in the leading economic journals. He's also well known for his editorial opinions in the Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, and of course, his blog, The Grumpy Economist. Welcome, John. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Too much money spent chasing too few goods is the preferred explanation that most people think about when discussing the causes of inflation. But how generally applicable to this set argument to our modern economy? Today, we will be talking with Dr. John Cochrane, who will speak about his most recent book, The Fiscal Theory of the Price Level, where he argues that changes in price levels depend rather on the expectations of the ability of governments to repay their debt. John, let's start with, in your book, in a couple of instances you write, and I quote, the fiscal theory is the only viable theory we have that is broadly consistent with present institutions. What do you mean by that? And what I'm referring to, it is not the specifics of the fiscal theory itself, which we will discuss in just a moment, but the final part of the sentence, the present institutions part. I think it's kind of suggestive of a larger discussion about the epistemology of economics as a discipline. It makes me wonder about the pretension of abstract self-truths that we often hear in economics and how general and broadly applicable our theories are to settings independent of time and space. Uh, that that's fun. Uh, let, let me start with the uh, narrow answer to your question, and then I, maybe we'll <laughs> go on to the philosophical one. Um, our current economy, uh, the uh, most important thing, the Federal Reserve does not control the quantity of money. So there's a perfectly viable theory of inflation. The you know when you mention too much money chasing too few goods, the famous uh, MV equals PY of Milton Friedman and and Anna Schwartz. Uh, and that's a fine theory, but it requires that the government control the quantity of money. And if the government does not control the quantity of money, as, as they kept saying, uh, then then the, the price level isn't determined. It's not a theory that tells you uh, what the price level will be. So that just doesn't, it's a nice theory, but it doesn't apply today. The gold standard's a nice theory, if you want. You can, you can think about the value of money is determined by the value of gold and the promise to change a dollar for gold. Well, our government doesn't promise to change a dollar for gold. So that's a nice theory too, but doesn't apply today. Um, the third, the uh, the our government sets interest rates, so we need a theory of inflation under interest rate targets. There is a a theory of inflation under interest rate targets called the New Keynesian uh, theory, but it has some internal uh, problems, which we'll uh, probably not get into unless you ask me to. And that this the fiscal theory solves uh, those internal problems. There's an old Keynesian theory that um, uh, sort of the ILSLM diagrams that you slept through when you were an undergraduate because uh, they didn't make any sense. 
and they don't make any sense. They are, they are uh, perhaps a mechanistic description of the economy, but they're not a real economic theory in the way we uh, think of an economic theory. Um, you know, uh, 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 they describe objects like consumption, not people and firms and, and so forth. So this is it. It's the only complete economic theory we have that describes our current institutions, meaning the central bank doesn't control the quantity of money and sets an interest rate target. And I should add, what's money anyway these days? <laughs> um, we have this enormous number of liquid assets. The, that monetarism was, was invented in a time where if you didn't go to the bank and get cash on a Friday, you could not get a restaurant dinner on Saturday. Well, as Marie Antoinette said, let them use their credit cards. Um, so even even the nat the separation of money and financial assets has disappeared, and the fiscal theory is consistent with that, and monetarist theory is not. Now, do you want to, you asked a broader epistemological question? I, I realized my answer got to the lock. You 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 attack the world with the theory you have. So it's funny in economics there is a tendency to keep writing papers where money supply control determines the price level because it's kind of an easy thing to do, but the money supply control doesn't determine the price level. Well, you know, you write, got to write a model and you got to get the price level somewhere. So you use the tools that you have, even if they don't apply. Um, and, and, you know, we, we, we got to make progress. Usually if you're, you're interested in studying something else, like the costs of inflation or something. So just throw MV equals PY and don't worry about it. And that's, that's, you know, that's the way all science kind of makes progress, but it's time to clean that up. Okay. You mentioned how the definition of money has blurred with time. So I would like to start with the definitions and the basics. So how would you define inflation and also deflation, which is something that maybe economists think more like more as, as more harming? And also why studying them is, is such an important matter? Uh, thank you. That's really important. And in, especially in monetary affairs and financial affairs, people find it so confusing because there's this big jargon of fancy words. And a lot of people use those fancy words, at, and you get the impression that there's some deep technical understanding. No, <laughs> we use fancy words like uh, you know liquidity and contagion and uh, so forth. And eh, nobody really does what they mean. <laughs> but let's define the ones we really mean. Uh, inflation, and this is important. Inflation is uh, well. There's a measure of inflation which is uh, done by the government, which is at uh, trying to measure all prices, the rise and fall of all prices together, not one thing relative to another. And then uh, there's also inflation, the phenomenon, which is when all prices and wages go up, when the value of the currency declines. Now, that's as separate from uh, prices of specific things. And here's where all sorts of people get confused and reporting gets confused. If the price of oil goes up, that's not inflation. That's the price of oil going up relative to something else. Uh, so don't confuse relative prices and inflation. They're, everything's always moving around. But inflation is the part that's common to everything. And that inherently means the value of money and the value of government debt is going down. And vice versa. Deflation is where all prices and wages and everything else is going down. The value of money uh, is going up. So that's, that's important. Don't get confused by all the jiggling around of, of the different things. Yeah, similarly, money. Uh, yeah, uh, money is. It seems easy, easy to define. It's that stuff the government gives us. But to what extent? Uh, I think really the the issue is um, 
is money just that thing you use to make transactions and a special asset, uh, or is it in some sense the uh, well? Is it the the thing we use to 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 quote all prices uh, in? So that's that's the basic definition. Now, why is inflation important? Well, that's a that's a deep question. Most of our economic models, inflation doesn't really hurt that much. Uh, but ask anybody out in the world, and and we all hate inflation. Now, a lot of the reason is inflation sets forward a lot of um, uh, a lot of unexpected redistributions. If you borrowed money and there's inflation, you have to get to pay it back in much less valuable dollars. If you lent money and there's inflation, uh, you just lost uh, a lot of real returns. So there's a lot of noise in inflation, and it, it screws up the price system. Uh, inflation is associated with all sorts of uh, bad economic outcomes. Uh, you know, I think you're from Latin America, so I think uh, you and your friends, uh, compatriots, have experienced this. Um, so we we like to avoid it. Now, it's not the most important economic problem, I got to admit. Uh, I write about inflation because it's where I think I have a novel answer. The most important economic problem is long-term growth. And the most uh, the, the deep problem of our society is that long-term growth is about 4% in the post-war era, and it's cut down to 2% now. And Europe pretty much stopped growing at all in, in 2010. And if this keeps going for a couple of decades, that's really, really awful. That's the pressing economic problem. But I don't have any answers on that. Uh, you know, go talk to my friends, the growth theorists. Uh, my colleague at Stanford, Chad Jones, is just brilliant. Pete Clino, it, it's great people doing stuff on growth theory. I, I just don't have anything to say about it. So I wrote about inflation. <laughs> so in the preface of your book, you mentioned that you want to provide a theory rooted in, Ch in Chicago tradition. So first, could you elaborate on the fiscal theory of the price level compared to monetary theories, and also specifically how it may be felt from other fiscal theories that may be not rooted in Chicago perspectives? Yeah, so I, I didn't, uh, did I want to or not? I, I hate to be unscientific. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, we, we, whatever tradition provides a good answer is the right tradition. I uh, know it. Chicago tradition has provided a lot of great answers, and I'm philosophically uh, Chicago type. You could take the fiscal theory at the price level and and make it as much of a Cambridge or Stanford theory as you'd like. Now, what does that mean? Um, Chicago economics tends to work hard to make simple supply and demand incentives markets uh, to understand the world through that lens. Uh, which often takes a lot of work, and only grudgingly add, let's call them frictions, uh, places where markets don't work. Why? Not not because we believe markets always work, but just because historically, um, spending a little more time understanding the world with supply, demand, incentives, property rights, has led to just dramatic ways of understanding things. It's not as easy as it seems. So I did philosophically want to try for a theory with that kind of simplicity. And the fiscal theory offers it. In fact, it's it's even more Chicago than Chicago. Uh, the Chicago tradition was supply, demand, free markets, and so forth, except when you talk about inflation. And uh, the, the monetarism, the uh, idea that inflation comes from money, fundamentally needs a departure from free and frictionless markets at the basis of it. There's this special asset money that is different from bonds because we need some money to make our transactions. So the 
split of uh, money versus bonds is, is all important. Well, that, that's fine, but that is, uh, that is something away from frictionless. So the fiscal theory actually is even more Chicago. You can start with a pure supply and demand uh, frictionless economy. They don't stay there for long. If you just stare at the data, you notice that uh, uh, prices are somewhat sticky, that inflation doesn't happen overnight. Uh, most recently, you know, one of the great predictions of fiscal theory is if you dump $5 trillion out the window, uh, you'll get inflation. That's kind of what our government did during the COVID time. We got inflation, but it didn't happen overnight. It took a year or two. So you do you add frictions to fiscal theory as you do to other things. But it is, you know, the Chicago perspective, you start with people and what they want, and they're optimized. You describe their behavior as a first pass as they're optimizing a simple objective. You start with companies who at first pass are maximizing profits. You have markets where supply equals demand. And uh, you, you work hard to explain the world that way. And then you notice places where it really can't work, like the fact that prices don't move overnight. And then you add carefully described uh, frictions as necessary to, to explain the world. And that's, that's the way I developed fiscal theory at the price level. But I, again, I, I really invite my colleagues in Cambridge and other places, you want to throw uh, adaptive expectations, behavioral economics, uh, monopolies, uh, pricing frictions, uh, uh, financial frictions, credit constraints. You know, you can embed the fiscal theory, the price level idea, in in any kinds of heterodox or, or uh, post Keynesian economics, if you want, go go for it. I I chose to go in another direction. What are the most important key aspects that fiscal theory of, of the price level explains that maybe a monetarist approach or a new Keynesian approach would fail to actually explain? Uh, yeah, well, I guess we haven't really said what the fiscal price theory of the price level is, so let me, let me fill that in a little bit for people. Uh, the basic idea is this. When do we get inflation? Uh, we get inflation when the uh, government debt is uh, worth more than what people think the government will eventually pay off by uh, taxes greater than spending. So government debt is an asset. It's uh, the, the one idea is prices, present value, dividends, and we, we apply this to government debt. So if you're holding government bonds and you wake up one day and say, oh, you know, uh, I've been waiting for these guys to come fix the debt situation, but they're never going to do it. Uh, they're going to inflate this stuff away sometime soon. Then what you do is you try to get rid of that government debt. The only way we can get rid of government debt is by buying things, and that's fundamentally what determines inflation. Now, why is that different? It's too much stuff trying to chase too few goods. Yeah, that's right. But it's too much overall government debt rather than money versus bonds. That's the big difference. Uh, Milton Friedman would also say um, that if you drop $5 trillion of money on people, helicopter drop, you get inflation. The crucial question is whether it's the total amount of government debt or money versus bonds, uh, if, if, they, if they gave you $5 trillion of money and took back $5 trillion of bonds, would that cause it? Monitor is yes, uh, fiscal theory. So that, that's you know, what the fiscal theory is at basics. Now, uh, episodes. Uh, I think that's, I, I love this historical approach. Let's start with at least, is there a plausible story for episodes before we run into formal macro, formal you know, econometric tests? That's the right way to do things. 
And I have an essay, which I'll advertise fiscal histories that tried to do just that. It's not proof. It's just, can we tell a story? And I think uh, two episodes are worth mentioning right now. One, one I've already alluded to, uh, during the COVID uh, uh, pandemic, both Trump and Biden administration showered the economy with uh, about $3 trillion of newly printed money and $2 trillion of borrowed money. Crucially, uh, that there was no, uh, no, at the same time, we did not say, here's how we're going to pay this back. Uh, in 2008, they were pretty clear, we're borrowing money to spend it, but we're going to pay it back. Uh, this time, um, they suspended the normal budget rules by which you have to say how you're going to pay back expenditures. Uh, many administration officials were saying, don't worry about debts, interest rates are low, modern monetary theory. We, do, we don't have to have any plans to pay back. So uh, $5 trillion of debt and had no plan to pay it back, that's what the fiscal theory says causes inflation. Bingo, we got inflation. Even though, you know, you could just tell by the forecast, the Fed completely missed that this inflation was gonna happen. Uh, so that, that I think is a powerful episode. I, I, I gotta say, I'm one of the luckiest economists in the world. I, I put in my draft for the book uh, in, um, uh, in, in uh, March of 2021, before there wasn't any inflation. I put an introduction and said, well, we haven't seen inflation since the Reagan era. Nobody's going to care about this book. But, you know, someday dust it off the shelf. Maybe you'll find it useful. I got to change that introduction because they did my experiment exactly <laughs> as I put the book. Uh, another episode, if you don't mind me going on just a little bit, um, the long, uh, the zero bound era of the 28 to 20 uh, uh, to 2020 I think is is a crucial uh, test of theories. Uh, what happened in two thousand and eight? We started to see deflation. Uh, there was a big financial crisis, a huge recession, but uh, there was a couple of percentage points of deflation, and it, all the commentators said, "Wow, here comes nineteen thirty three again. Here comes the deflation spiral." Why? Uh, we're getting a little deflation. Interest rates are stuck at zero, so the real interest rate interest rate minus inflation is positive. That dampens aggregate demand. That causes more deflation. And now you've got big deflate, you know, 5% deflation. Interest rates are stuck at zero. That's a 5% real interest rate. Ah, less aggregate demand, more deflation. Here comes the deflation spiral. It did not happen. That was a clear prediction, accurate prediction. It's exactly what standard ISLM modeling says should happen. It did not happen. Fiscal theory says no. There's not going to be a big deflation. And there's a reason why there won't be a big deflation. If the value of the dollar goes way down, uh, tax receipts go way down. And to have a big deflation, uh, the government would have to raise taxes there to, in order to pay off debt, right? You have to repay the debt with more valuable dollars. You have to raise tax. There's no way in the world anybody believes our government will react to a recession and the deflation by raising taxes. And do fiscal stimulus, exactly what they did. So fiscal theory, boom, no deflation. That victory number one. Victory number two, uh, the Fed started doing quantitative easing, uh, buying immense numbers of bonds. So that, that classic experiment, we take your bonds, we give you money. That was supposed to stimulate. It was immense. From uh, $10 billion of reserves, we went to $3,000 billion of reserves. This was a monetary atom bomb. Um, and, you know, 300% increase. What happened uh, as a result? Nothing. Inflation just sat there. 
though, that the dog didn't bark, the bomb didn't go off. Again, fiscal theory says that yeah, interest-paying reserves and government debt, it's all the same stuff. So quantitative easing would not have an effect. You know, we're arguing about a couple percent here but uh, uh, of interest rates, but uh, it should have caused hyperinflation. So fiscal theory uh, is, is consistent. It's the only current theory we have that is perfectly happy saying 0% interest rates, slight inflation, slight deflation, just trundles along for 10 years and goes nowhere. Uh, whereas all the other theories said you'd have an inflation or deflation spiral. Uh, so I regard that as a big success in Okay, I'm a Latin American, so I'm used to looking into macroeconomic phenomena from the point of view of small open economies, where basically the exchange rate based pass-through may be substantial. So I can't really see how fiscal theories are more attractive explanations than typical monetarist or new Keynesian approaches, especially in settings like this where the public debt is held in foreign currencies. But could you elaborate a bit on how introducing exchange rates into your base model may or may not modify some of his conclusions? Uh, sure. Uh, now, I want to say I haven't done that yet, uh, and uh, so I'll, I'll speculate a little bit. We have kind of simple models, but um, if, if anybody out there is a, a graduate student or assistant professor looking for some thesis topics, uh, doing a better job of fiscal theory with exchange rates, I think, is, is a wide-open wide open territory, low-hanging fruit. Let me not mix my metaphors too badly here. <laughs> um, there's a couple. So actually, most economists uh, meet fiscal theory. Most of my buddies say, well, it's a great theory for Latin American problems or big inflations for Argentina, for Venezuela, for currency collapses. Uh, you know, why, why do you have exchange rates that, that collapse and so forth? You, you just look at the history of Latin America and you see fiscal problems dominating why inflation comes. You know, why does Argentina get inflation? Well, they're spending money like, you know, it's, it's, it, they're spending more money than they have. And, you know, the IMF in the 1990s, when it went into a country having an exchange rate problem, it didn't go to its central bank and say, toughen up, guys, you know, stop, stop uh, you know, raise interest rates. No, went straight to the treasury and said, uh, you know, you got to stop spending so much money that you don't have. So the fiscal roots of inflation were, were, you know, pretty darn clear in Latin America, and and the fight has been can we apply the same ideas uh, to the U.S. Uh, but uh, there, it's also true, and uh, I also would I wish I knew more Latin American history. There's a wonderful new book that uh, let's see, uh, Tim Kehoe and oh, get the co-author, so I'm whoever you are, I'm sorry, or, I forget right now, but just put out at uh, the. Uh, uh, University of Minnesota Press on the history of Latin American inflation. So it's a great, uh, great proving ground. And uh, so quite often, for example, Brazil uh, several times uh, would have inflation and currency going down, would raise its interest rate to try to stop it, but wouldn't fix the fiscal problem. What happens is the higher interest rate just raises the interest costs on the debt, makes the, makes the fiscal problem worse, uh, and you get more inflation, not less inflation. So that that kind of fiscal monetary interaction happens. I mean, and exchange rates are important. So the first place you see the decline in the value of the currency is the exchange rate. So exchange rates are, uh, I think, going to be very helpful. You know, when prices are sticky. So if you have an inflation, it takes a while to see it in a country like the U.S., whereas if you have an inflationary pressure, a fiscal pressure, the, the exchange rate, Boom, can go run away. So it actually ought to be uh, clearer. 
Now, you mentioned foreign currency debt. That's actually an interesting effect. Foreign countries, currency debt is, is like corporate debt. You pay it back or you default, whereas having your own currency debt is like equity, where you don't have the, it, you can just inflate when you don't have the resources to pay it back. So it's a very interesting question, you know, should you have foreign currencies that are domestic currency? Foreign currency debt could be a great thing because you're, you're, you're pledging yourself to pay it back or go through the pain of default. On the other hand, when default comes, it's really painful, uh, which is why most, many countries like Argentina have to borrow in foreign currency because if they borrow domestic currency, people say, you'll just inflate that away. We're not giving you money. Domestic debt has this great uh, advantage. You can inflate it away, but you're tempted to inflate it. So there's a, a whole corporate finance can export to the question of should a small open economy, uh, how much should it uh, issue debt versus equity? How much should it uh, um, issue foreign currency bonds versus domestic currency bonds? So we briefly discussed more or less how economic history, financial history can help kind of be the test for some of the theories. And in the book, you mentioned more or less that the success of a theory depends really not only on the inherent merits by the simplicity and internal consistency of the model, but also on its storytelling potential in accounting for this kind of historical events. And you mentioned, of course, the ESA that you publish in the Journal of Economic Perspectives, Fiscal Histories. Before we go more in that, I would like to ask you in general, what is your opinion on the relevance of monetary and financial history for those that actually do monetary economics? Oh, oh, tremendous and ought to be a lot more. Now, what I, you, you, you equated storytelling with history, which I'm sure you didn't mean to do, but <laughs> you know, storytelling is the first draft of history, but then going back and really going through the archives, documenting, getting the historical data, uh, documenting that the stories are or are not true, uh, that history is properly done is, 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 is scientific. <laughs> Not just storytelling. No, I, I did not mean in, in a bad I way. Know in fact, you didn't. I mean I'm alluding to uh, there's an important essay by McCloskey about economic. He said he, she's, he, she said that economics really is storytelling and really economics is history in a way. So yeah, I'm, I'm an economic historian, so I'm not. Yes, I, I don't have anything against it. Economic theory, all the fancy equations, are just quantitative. I call them quantitative parables. They are stories that are. Uh, just you, you put them in equations so that you make sure you didn't screw something up, violate a budget constraint, that your stories are internally consistent. But we are telling uh, quantitative stories about history. That's all that economics does. Uh, fancy econometrics is just a way of summarizing the lessons of history, what has happened historically on average in situations like this. And uh, I think it would be We'd all be a lot better if we recognized that fact and, and told a few more of the stories of the data points. I think it's especially important for monetary and fiscal affairs because we have, if you'd like, so few data points, um, just number of data points. Uh, how many times has debt been big and then been repaid? You know, you, you need, if you're going to do econometrics, you need to see as something vary over time. You need, uh, you know, to, to, to do global warming, you can't do three hours of temperature data. You need a few days and actually a few years. <laughs> so we really have episodes, and it's a mistake to you know, chop, chop them up. Furthermore, um, there's some sort of deep theorems of economic theory. Very hard to tell cause and effect when you're watching time series from an economic regime. 
you learn so much more from the times when uh, the regime changes, when there's a big break in how people do things. And of course, history tells you that. And, you know, Dave and Christina Romer have been good about this. Even within the, uh, they, they, they looked at the Federal Reserve and, and did the narrative history. We try in, in examining um, U.S. Uh, history to understand what are the effects of an interest rate rise. But you need to find cause and effect, an interest rate rise that wasn't responding to something else. How do you do that? Well, a lot of fancy equations, or you just go read the minutes of the Federal Reserve and, and you know, when did it look like they were just doing something? Uh, so I, I think uh, history, you know, careful reading of economic history, especially around times of turmoil, changes in regime, uh, allow you to do that cause and effect uh, decomposition, which is so incredibly hard otherwise. And, and I think we do need to do a lot more of it. I, I, right now I'm reading, uh, for example, a great paper, I'll advertise that, uh, by uh, Barbara Jacobs and Eric Leeper and Bruce Preston. It's called Recovery of 1933. It's an example uh, of your point. Uh, they looked at what happened when deflation stopped uh, on the instant, pretty much, that Roosevelt was uh, uh, was inaugurated and went off the gold standard. And this turns out to be a beautiful episode in fiscal theory, but for fiscal theory, we have to understand what did people expect about future budget deficits and surpluses? Will this debt be paid off in the future? That's very, you can't do that with econometrics, but you go read the history and he showed you how they carefully changed the expectations about would this debt be repaid or not. Uh, so do, do history. So going on this, but also tying it, up, tying it up with our previous questions about the applicability of monetary theories, in the article and the book, for example, you mentioned the gold standard, how basically these models can be studied more or less as a peculiar case of your fiscal theory, where gold in that case is just kind of technology of fiscal commitment. So what I want to ask you is, is there a particular period or event that you think could not be understood through your theory? It seems to me that really the essential ingredients of your theory is just like the existence of a government and government debt. And depending on how you define what government debt is, it kind of applies to almost all sedentary human societies. Uh, and not, not to, so I do think the gold standard is an instance of fiscal theory. Uh, because so in the gold standard, the government uh, uh, issues paper money and says, you can always come, uh, you know, get X amount of gold for each dollar bill, right? And that seems like it's a, well, it's gold is determining. But key, the government has to have the gold. If we all come asking for the gold from our dollar bills and the government doesn't have it, it's going to fall apart. Uh, now, governments never have enough gold to back all their dollar bills. And even when they do, they don't have enough gold to back all of their government debts, which are promises to deliver future dollar bills. Uh, so um, what do they do when people want it? Well, they have to have the ability to tax to get the gold or they have to have the ability to promise future taxes so that they can borrow the gold. And that is what it takes to defend the gold standard. So the gold standard is really a fiscal commitment. Commitment, we will always keep the ability to tax to, in order to provide the needed gold uh, to back up our currency or our debts. And in both directions, uh, we won't we tax too little, we won't tax too much. 
So it, it, actually, we need to find the gold standard. We should not go back to the gold standard for a bunch of reasons we, we can talk about. But uh, it, we need to find uh, some better set of fiscal commitments so that people understand um, how, you know, more clearly our government's commitment uh, to not inflate or conflate on. So the gold standard, I, I think, is part of fiscal theory. And uh, uh, you can add, uh, even monetarism, you can add special demands for monetary assets, special demands for government bonds. And fiscal theory doesn't say that the liquidity demands for special assets are zero. It says that you start by thinking of the value of money by what it's backed by. It's backed by taxes. And then you add on liquidity, frictions, credit constraints. Now, what would it not apply to? Uh, it needs... Um, something nominal and something real. So the basic idea is, is government debt that promises only dollars uh, it is, is repaid by something real, the real value of future taxes minus spending. Uh, to, you know, to get the, a dollar is something nominal and it has to be backed by something real and that gives you a conversion between nominal and real. That's what the price level is, is the rate of exchange between dollars and, and real things. The government has to do that. So an example, uh, suppose we had an economy just with gold, gold coins, a medieval economy, no paper money, uh, and and just gold coins, which are valued by their only by their metallic content. Actually, historians here will start exploding. Uh, that's not really how it worked. But imagine a hypothetical economy where there's gold coins and they're completely valued by how many ounces of gold are in the coin. That's not the fiscal theory of the price level. That's, that's actually... Uh, more like M equals by the transactions demand. You need so you need some nominal government debt. You really need something like a, a nominal dollars, nominal government debt, a a, a a a unit of account that isn't I will pay you an ounce of gold. A unit of account that says I will pay you a dollar, and somebody says that dollar is worth an ounce of gold. You need that to have the fiscal. It's it's not always or a clamshell economy. That, you know, famous economies of the South Pacific, where, or wampum in, you know, early uh, North American uh, economies, where you know, I'll give you three clamshells, you you give me the you give me the the, the chicken. Uh, well, the clamshells, you know, that, that's not issued by a government. There's nothing nominal, nothing real. So that that would right. So you briefly just mentioned how your theory basically explains better the recent problems since the 2008 with the zero lower bound and the recent COVID expansionary policies. So what about what occurred a little bit earlier? Because I think one of the prime examples that we all study in economics about inflationary problems is the, the stagflation problems of the 70s. So how do you account for that? Yeah, the 70s and the 80s. Um, so let me disclaim, uh, again, this whole book is a foundation. It's a, and if it's, it's not, everything's wrapped up. It's a... Um, is a possibility, and I would really love to encourage. What one of my projects is to do an economic history of the seventies and eighties, and really tie this down. And, and I would love it if our podcast could get someone else to do that before I do because I'm lazy. <laughs> uh, but so where are we with the seventies, eighties? I will offer a story, and I think there is a plausible story to be chased down. Uh, but I don't want to. You know, I'm kind of reserved and scientific. I don't want to claim this has been done. When you look at the 70s and 80s, the standard, this is the hardest one because the standard story is it's all the Fed's fault in the 70s. And uh, hooray, uh, uh, Volcker came to the rescue in the 1980s, raised interest rates, 
tight money cured inflation. And that's that. That's the standard story. So we're really fighting. We're swimming upstream here to, to say it's something different. But uh, it's long been recognized that inflation broke out in the 1960s uh, because of fiscal as well as monetary problems. Uh, Johnson wanted to run the Vietnam War and the Great Society, and he did not want to raise taxes to pay for it. And uh, how the it really broke down within the constraints of Bretton Woods. So if you remember, the economy was very different back then. And the, in the Bretton Woods system, uh, the government couldn't really borrow from abroad. You had to borrow domestically. Uh, and, you know, now when our government runs a huge budget deficit, how do we do it? You know, China buys the treasury bills. Couldn't do that. And the U.S. is running a huge trade deficit as well, which, uh, you know, we, we sell domestic assets. Well, closed gas, capital markets. The, the trade deficit was the big thing that blew up Bretton Woods. And there was a promise. There's still a promise to tie dollars to gold. So the, the U.S. government promised foreign central banks that they could get gold in return for dollars. Now, you can't have steady inflation under a gold peg uh, because every year, even a 2% inflation, every year you're leaving the gold peg behind by 2%. And that's what happened. Uh, foreign central banks said, we want our gold, we want our gold, we want our gold. We ran out of gold. So boom, Bretton Woods blew up. And that was fiscal. Uh, that was about uh, financing what seemed now like small budget deficits, but they were big budget deficits at the time and trade deficits, and that system just couldn't do it. Um, the night, then the 70s inaugurated the uh, uh, productivity slowdown. Growth slowed down. It was a terrible decade economically. 1975, in fact, had the largest primary deficits since the Second World War. And the idea of the U.S. government debt being sacrosanct and not inflating away, I think, uh, you know, you look at the 70s, you say, oh, there's a lot to that. Uh, 1980 uh, was not just a monetary contraction. The 1980s were a classic joint monetary and fiscal stabilization. So what happened? Yes, um, uh, it was part monetary. So mo in the fiscal theory at the price level, by the way, monetary policy is still very powerful. The Fed, by changing interest rates, has an enormous impact on the rate of inflation. It's not all uh, de de deficits. Uh, so yes, by raising interest rates, uh, what what happens in fiscal theory is raising interest rates, you can get a short run, big reduction in inflation. But the long run stuff really depends on fiscal policy as well. So yes, raising interest rates, that sent inflation down. Boom. But Brazil's done that about 10 times. Uh, I'm exaggerating. I mean, history of Latin America, many times. Uh, central banks have raised interest rates, tightened money, stopped inflation for for a year or two. Argentina is famous for this, and then both inflation gets back again. Why? Haven't solved the fiscal problem. Well, in the 1980s, the U.S. didn't just tighten monetary policy. It 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 it, it had a series of fundamental fiscal reforms. First of all, they fixed Social Security. Again, for fiscal theory, it's not about today's debt and deficits causing inflation. This is very important. Today's debt and deficits don't matter at all. We can have huge deficits. We can have huge debts. If everybody understands there's a plan to pay them back, then you don't get inflation. You get inflation when there's, when there's future debt deficits, when people don't think this debt can be paid back over decades. Well, they fixed Social Security at least for 20, 30 years in the 1980s. Big Social Security reform. I wish we could do that again. Uh, then there was a series of tax reforms that lowered the marginal tax rate from 70% to 28%. It's not like fiscal policy was asleep. But at the same time, I cured the Swiss cheese of deductions in the tax code. And there was a big deregulation, so the economy started growing. You want tax receipts. The way to do it is not raise tax revenue. 
The way to do it is to grow the economy. Tax receipt is tax rate times income, more income. That gets you better taxes. And the economy boomed. And you look at uh, primary surpluses and deficits. Uh, by the mid-1990s, economists were writing papers about what will we do when all the federal debt has been paid off. So in fact, there was a big fiscal reform. There were big fiscal surpluses that repaid the debt over uh, a decade and a half um, and that paid the, the fiscal consequences of tight money. When the Fed raises interest rates, that raises the interest costs on the debt. Someone's got to pay for that. Taxpayers paid for it. When we disinflate, that's a present to long-term bondholders who get back much more valuable dollars than they contracted. Someone has to pay for that. Taxpayers paid for it. So 1980 in the U.S. was a joint fiscal monetary reform. And if you look broadly through history, what stops inflation is not just tight money. It's always a combination of monetary uh, tightness with a fiscal reform that gives you, that stops the reason for printing up too much money in the first place. Typically also microeconomic reforms that allow the economy to grow and produce better tax revenue require less spending. That's the trifecta that stops inflation. In, in Latin America, it's done it many times. The inflation targeting countries, New Zealand, Canada, Israel, all combined a monetary reform, fiscal reform, and microeconomic reform. And the 1980s in the U.S. was no different. I would like to end our discussion by asking your perspective on the future of the U.S. dollar, the U.S. public debt, and by corollary, the long-term forecast for inflation in the U.S. Do you think there is a ceiling for public debt? Do you think, absent some shocks, the U.S. could perpetually sustain a never-increasing fiscal deficit? No. <laughs> uh, not the U.S., not, not anyone else. Um, so forecasting is hard, especially about the future. And I, I generally don't like to do it because I tend to be wrong. But uh, certainly we can, we can talk about some contingencies. So, you know, we can talk about what the possible paths are. And then forecasting is about assigning probabilities to those paths, which is also a political question. You're really asking about uh, is the current, uh, current decay of American institutions going to continue until the vandals come in and, and sack Washington, D.C. like they did in Rome, or, or are we going to get back to get back to a serious country? And uh, part of being a serious country is being serious about paying your debts. Uh, I hope the latter, uh, but we are certainly in a period of the kind of norm-breaking that leads to also um, prioritizing other things than repaying your debts, which, which means inflation. Uh, so is, is there, see, there is no magic debt to GDP ratio that means inflation. I want to emphasize this. Uh, fiscal theory of the price level is not about debt or deficits cause inflation. It's about debt or deficits relative to expectations that over the long run, these can be repaid. And where does that come from? That does not come from Joe and Jane sitting around the kitchen table and forecasting the federal deficit in the year 2034. It's a general sense of uh, do we have faith in the institutions that sooner or later, after they've tried everything else, uh, they will do the simple kinds of fiscal and budgetary reforms it takes to pay off the debt? Will they inherit the spirit of Alexander Hamilton that this debt is sacrosanct and that uh, our country, even though the people who own the debt are Wall Street fat cats and Chinese central bankers, nonetheless, maintaining the sanctity of repaying your debts is really important for the long-term future of the country. 
Or do they start to think, you know, the people in charge uh, don't think that maintaining that reputation is worth a whole lot. They would rather spend money on people who need it right now. I better dump this government debt. That's, that's the expectations that, that matter. So uh, to your questions, the U.S. can borrow an enormous amount if it convinces people and the solidity of our fiscal institutions that we'll repay those debts. We borrowed like 140% of GDP by the end of World War II. People understood the war was a really necessary spent expenditure. They understood the war was over and that we would go back to running small primary surpluses for a generation to pay that debt off, as we largely did. We inflated away a certain amount of it, but not, not as much as you might think. Uh, and people who held the debt were persuaded uh, that, that it, was, it was worth something. So, you know, we borrowed a tremendous amount in other wars. The UK borrowed like 150% of GDP to win the Napoleonic Wars, paid that off under the gold standard at face value. So you could borrow a lot uh, if you have the, you know, people's confidence that there's fiscal space, that, that you know, the government is dedicated to paying that debt. On the other hand, you know, Argentina has, uh, has debt crises at 40% debt to GDP because people aren't convinced that they are willing or able to pay off even 40%. So there isn't, uh, but there is a ceiling out there somewhere, right? Uh, the the modern monetary view or the R less than G view, uh, the extreme R less than G view, that there's just no limit on public debt. Uh, that's clearly wrong. If that were right, it's not just the government doesn't have to worry about paying back debts, uh, then they could pay back your mortgage. Then they could just send us, you know, 200 grand of universal basic income and we all order everything on Amazon and never have to work again. Obviously, that's not right. So you know there's a limit on, on government borrowing has to get paid back. Where it is depends on, on how confident people are in those uh, fiscal institutions. Uh, we seem to be, you know, Japan's a 250, uh, though, you know, we'll see how long that one lasts. Uh, the UK seemed to run into a bit of a bondholder kerfuffle at around 100% debt to GDP, uh, but they didn't have fiscal space for much more. We clearly, uh, the U.S., um, you know, this bout of inflation is very instructive. For 10 years, lots of people have been saying, borrow more money, R is less than G, we'll grow out of it, modern monetary theory, interest costs are low, don't worry about the debt, secular stagnation, stimulus, supply will follow demands, uh, you know, keep going. Boom. We just hit the brick wall. We know where supply ends, and we know that... Uh, are, are the collective debt holders were not willing to hold more than about 120% of GDP of U.S. government debt. When we exceeded that, they said, uh-uh, and they tried to spend it and caused inflation. So that seems to be our limit about now. Uh, you know, I would think if we, in the next crisis, if we try another $5 trillion of debt, uh, we'll probably get inflation uh, just as fast unless... We have a system for saying, yes, you know, let's say China's invaded Taiwan. We need stimulus, bailout, military spending, lend us the money. And this time we have a plan for paying it back. You better have that plan if you want to borrow that money and not cause inflation. So that's roughly where we are. And, and you can tell it's about political institutions more than about fundamental economics. Well, thank you for your time, Professor. Thank you. This has been uh, a very good, very interesting interview. Thanks. 
why price levels keep rising is one of the most pressing daily questions regular people ask themselves. Economists have been debating the causes of inflation and deflation for centuries. Yet, such a fundamental part of economics remains a hotly debated topic. The 20th century answers that focus on monetarist and interest rate approaches fail to incorporate the critical role played by governments. The fiscal theory of the price level puts fiscal policy and credible commitments, or lack thereof, at the core of the explanation. It improves our understanding of the intertwined relationship between monetary and fiscal institutions. Markets and Cooperation, a podcast from the Penn Initiative for the Study of Markets at the University of Pennsylvania's Economics Department. Our goal is to bring a thoughtful, fact-based and entertaining discussion on the historical experience of markets and their philosophical foundations. I am Fernando Arteaga and I will be glad to hear from you. You can follow us on Instagram and on Twitter as at Penn underscore exchange. Stay tuned.